Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are the things that help? And this is all the language that you have taught me over the years is that help them think about what to do. Ask those how questions. And boy, do they get mad at me. Welcome to season six of Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and all the big feelings too. We tackle the serious stuff without being too serious. And I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. And I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. I'll give you concrete steps to take and the words to say. Hi, everybody. I am thrilled. If you listen to the podcast, you know that you hear this name all the time because I talk about Michael all the time. I refer to him all the time. I quote him all the time. My last book, The Anxiety Audit, was dedicated to him because I wouldn't be talking to you guys right now if it weren't for Michael. Michael and I met when I was 26, and I am now 58. He's 107. He looks fabulous <laughs> for his age. I'm thrilled that you are here, Michael. Michael is one of the world's leading experts in the treatment of depression. He is so solid and concrete and helpful. I recommend his books all the time. And so as we started having guests on the podcast, of course, he was at the top of the list. So Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me, and I appreciate it. And Michael, you also met Robin. So Robin also has heard me talk about you all the time. So we have a lot of parents that listen and parents that are interested in learning about worry and anxiety. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is prevention, of course, and how anxiety, if we don't do anything about it, really is one of those predictors. I mean, we're seeing a lot of combinations right now of teens that are anxious and depressed. They get both of those diagnoses. So the first question I want to ask you is give us your best gems, the things that you want parents to know about how to best think preventatively about depression in kids, because you are one of the people that wrote very early on about the family generational patterns of depression. Well, let me lay some foundation for my reply. Okay. There's really two different avenues of prevention. And one is being able to anticipate and teach people the kinds of skills that make sure that they don't step on their own feet. They don't hurt themselves through bad decisions. But the other thing relates to the things that we can't prevent. And, you know, the last three and a half years through the COVID pandemic have taught us a lot. The world was literally turned into a living laboratory. And we saw in the span of three years, a little over three years, the rates of anxiety and depression double, at least some estimates say that it tripled. And it tells us something about how sensitive young people are, but everybody is, but especially young people are, to changes in their environments. 
What happens when they can't connect with their friends? What happens when they can't go to school? What happens when they can't play sports? What happens when they can't hang out with their buddies? You know, the kinds of shifts that took place really led to a skyrocketing of cases of anxiety and depression. And so, all right, we can't prevent a pandemic, but it does raise the question, and I would really encourage parents to think about this. Why didn't everybody get anxious? Why didn't everybody get depressed? What is it about the way that some people cope? What is it about the way that some people look at these things that puts them in a better position to not get overwhelmed by it and succumb then to the anxiety and the depression that can end up disrupting their lives? I think that if we're going to talk about prevention, and we can do that intelligently, you know, this is from my perspective, being a long time in this field, literally half a century. When I first started studying depression, the idea of prevention was a pipe dream. There weren't any good treatments, much less thinking about the possibility of prevention. That changed radically. Over the last 10 to 15 years, prevention strategies have been implemented. Prevention does actually work. And what does that mean? That means taking kids who are at risk and exposing them to the kinds of educational opportunities and therapeutic opportunities that can really make a difference in their life. Okay, now let's get specific then. If I had the magic wand where I could just touch the world and make a lot of problems go away, most important prevention skill there is, is foresight. The ability to make predictions and accurate predictions. And this is one of the ways that people just aren't good. Now, there's a whole field in the realm of mood disorders called affective forecasting. It's just a nice way of saying people predict how they're going to feel. And you don't just predict events in your life. You predict how you're going to feel in those events. Gee, isn't it going to be great when the family gets together for Christmas? That kind of thing. But you see how bad people are at predicting. You know, that I will love you forever right up until the time we get divorced two years later. <laughs> I'm really going to love taking this vacation. And what are we doing here? I didn't think I'd get so bored laying on the beach. You know, people are not good at predicting. So that skill of foresight, the ability to make predictions, and that starts early on. Can you teach your child how to anticipate consequences? And the answer is, yeah, that's a learnable skill. Not everything's predictable. But you can be pretty well assured that if you take this TikTok challenge to ride on top of a train moving at 80 miles an hour, that it hits one little bump in your history, that's not that tough to predict. But it, it takes an ability to think ahead and to plan ahead. And that's what I meant earlier when I said a lot of the prevention opportunities are there. But if people don't recognize them because they're so caught up in how they feel in the moment, they're not going to avail themselves of those. If you were to ask my husband about what was the one message that he gave my two boys, it was think one step ahead. They'd be leaving the house with their car keys or they'd be going off and he would say, hey, think one step ahead. And I think that's what you're saying is that you've got to anticipate. The present is different from the future. And you know, the, the mistake that people make, especially in the realm of depression, is thinking that how they feel now is how they're going to feel later. 
And that's what happens in therapy routinely is trying to break that, that how you feel now isn't the way that you're going to feel later if you do these things to help yourself. If you change the environment, if you change the sequence in some way, if you change your behavior in some way, if you focus on something different. And of course, that, that's what happens in therapy is people learn to shift their focus. But somebody doesn't have to be in therapy to do that. They just have to have a really cool dad who says, hey, you bozos, think ahead. <laughs> that's a really valuable piece of, of input. Michael, you often gave the example of somebody who keeps getting in bad relationships over and over and over again. Sometimes when I'm talking to kids, I give the example of you keep adopting border collies when you live in a studio apartment. So maybe you got to think ahead a little bit. This client that I had that came to me and he had been fired from like 32 jobs. And I said to him, well, what do you think the problem is? And he says, well, all my bosses have been assholes. And I'm thinking, I bet that's not the problem, actually. But it's that concept that is so important with anxiety, too. People are catastrophic in their predictions, but not paying attention to the patterns that they repeat over and over and over again. Well, that's such a curious thing. And it's a great point, because what you're really saying is how people don't view themselves as participants in what happens. And you know, this is, I think, one of the most enlightening shifts that's taken place in the, our understanding of depression. You know, it used to be for the longest time that we just viewed these people as unfortunate victims. And gee, isn't it too bad that they got depression? It must be because of their genes or it must be because of their environment in some way. And then along came a very different model and, and viewpoint. It's called the stress generation model. And it examines how people make decisions and how those decisions lead them into depression or exacerbate the depression that's already there. So as soon as you start to think that you aren't part of the problem, it's not meant to blame people, but it is meant to, to highlight that we're always making decisions. And ultimately, our quality of life is about the decisions that we make. We're having to make how many decisions in the span of a single day? Do I go here? Do I go there? Do I talk to this person? Don't I talk to this person? Should I return this call? Shouldn't I? Should I open this email? Shouldn't I? And the, your quality of life is a product of all the decisions that you make. What that also leads into then is something I alluded to just a little while ago. What happens when you make decisions on the basis of your feelings, and your feelings are depressed feelings. How's that going to affect the quality of your decisions? Now, this is a whole other area of research. It's called affective neuroscience. Now, for therapists that are listening or interested in it, the question of how your mood state influences your perceptions, how your mood state influences the, the quality of the decisions that you make. And when you're depressed, when you're anxious, you're very likely to make bad decisions that make things worse. And that's what stress generation refers to. And so from anybody's perspective, therapist or parent, we're really trying to teach better decision-making strategies. How do you decide what you're actually going to do here? Do you follow your feelings or do you decide you're going to make a decision based on the result you want, the outcome that you're trying to achieve? And that's one of the biggest shifts is moving people away from always following your feelings, always paying attention to your feelings, always amplifying your feelings, 
and being able to develop a variety of ways of making decisions. How you decide what you're going to eat for lunch is different than how you decide what you're going to wear, which is different than how you're going to decide how to respond to your best friend insulting you just now. There are very different qualities of decision making. Well, I think that one of the things that I've learned from you for all these decades is that depression is really so passive and that when you're working with people and when if you're trying to prevent depression as a parent, it's that language of passivity that really keeps this thing going, right? Well, there's nothing I can do about it, that this is just who I am. That language really causes a problem. They don't connect that they're in the driver's seat making all of those multiple decisions. Everything is happening to them. When you talk about these skills, and Lynn has really made it so much about skill building, which I love, which is also coming from you too. Directly from him, by the way. Directly. Right. So if a parent's listening to this podcast and they very likely could have had a history of depression and they are already seeing anxiety patterns in their kids and they realize, okay, I have this on my to-do list now. I have to focus on strengthening my kids' decision-making while also realizing maybe my own is not so good. Can a parent and a child really try and disrupt and change these at the same time? Or does one have to really start before the other can happen? Both, either or both. You know, the important thing is when a parent recognizes you can't teach your child what you don't know. And if you don't know how to be a problem solver, if you don't know how to get out of your own feelings. But the first step, of course, is being willing to acknowledge that. One of the most important pieces of work, in my judgment, that's come out in the last few years has fallen under the heading of the knowledge illusion, the knowledge illusion, the fact that people think they know more than they really do. And it isn't until they find themselves in circumstances where they have to demonstrate a specific form of knowledge. And the way that it happens in therapy is when I started asking people to explain How did you decide this? What did you take into account? What did you miss that ended up influencing the outcome? And it isn't until people are put in the position of having to explain what they think they know. And, you know, sometimes kids will ask for explanations and I don't have to explain myself to you. Stop asking me all these questions. And all that does is reinforce, I don't know how to explain why I said that. I don't know how to explain why I reacted that way. And if you don't have that mechanism to think through and develop some insight about that, it's going to be tough to teach it to your kid. Now, can you go on that journey together? Can you talk about what do you think you know? Here's the situation I faced. Okay, I'll share one, you share one. And let's ask each other the questions about how we decided that, how we determined that, how we thought we knew that. Danger always is when people think they know more than they do. I've always loved that bumper sticker that says, hire a teenager while he still knows everything. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a book actually that you recommend highly called The Knowledge Illusion, which is a great book that talks about that. It's not a therapy book at all. No, Yet it really makes the point over and over again of what happens when we have outdated knowledge, irrelevant knowledge. There's another book, as long as we're talking about books to recommend, by Adam Grant called Think Again. And that's going to be particularly relevant. Again, it's not a therapy book, but it's about the idea that we learn things at a certain time. And at the time, that might actually have been true. 
but we have to think again, we have to revise what we understand. Well, for parents, it's different because they've never faced the kinds of technological shifts that have taken place in their kids' lives. It's remarkable that anybody born after 1995 has never known a world without the internet. Parents forget that, that this is all relatively new stuff. Parents don't know about social media. The knowledge illusion that they think they know a little bit about it. They think they know what their kids are doing, but they really don't. So it starts with taking that responsibility of recognizing I don't know as much as I think I do. I do need to have the ability to question even myself about how do I make these kinds of decisions? What are the factors that I take into account? And unfortunately, particularly with anxiety and depression, the answer almost always is I just followed my feelings. I just trust my gut. That's exactly the right phrase. I trust my gut or I trust my intuition. And meanwhile, you know, that's probably not the best way to go, given how easy it is for feelings to be misled. Our guts lie and they they can tell the truth. But that requires another skill. How do you know when to listen to your feelings? How do you know when to override your feelings? I think people think about therapy as we're going to talk about feelings. We're going to talk about the past. And I think that one of the things that has been so great learning from you is that you really say like, look, your feelings sometimes are helpful and sometimes not. And your past is going to be informative, but it doesn't dictate your future. I think that one of the things that people expect is that we have to really learn about all of these feelings, or I have to talk about my relationships in the past. And I think that turns people off sometimes. Whereas if they could hear what we want to do in therapy, which is I want to help you build skills for the future, so much more helpful. I think this is what you have articulated incredibly well in your books, Lynn. You have made it abundantly clear that focusing on your feelings is only going to take you so far. And particularly when those feelings are anxious feelings and depressed feelings, if you get overwhelmed by them, it's not going to help your decision making. It's certainly not going to help your problem solving. And, you know, the whole idea of what has come to be called catastrophic thinking, from my perspective, how important it is to be able to think ahead and anticipate what can go wrong. Now, it helps to be able to assess risk realistically. And risk, of course, is a very subjective perception. You have people who will jump out of an airplane with a parachute on their back, and they don't think that's very risky. And somebody else who thinks it's really risky to try a new pizza place. It's important to be able to have some sense of of what the risks are. But as you've talked about and I've talked about, the problem isn't that people ask, what if this happens? What that does is it freezes it in midair as if here's this problem that's going to be so big, so overwhelming, I'll never be able to deal with it. And the most important thing that parents can do is when a child asks, whatever a child, adolescent, what if, answer the question. What would you do? How would you handle it? Let's move it from unpleasant and unmanageable to unpleasant and manageable. I don't want it to happen, but I can handle it if it does. And that's so much of what is missing is that quality of self-awareness and self-confidence. I have these problem-solving skills and I can use them to be able to handle the spontaneity You know, you've been really good at at pointing out the role of ambiguity and helping people get comfortable with that. 
that's a really important skill for anxiety and depression because so much of life is ambiguous, but it requires you to think and it requires you to anticipate and it requires you to problem solve. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from the psychologist David Barlow, who's at Boston University, who said, anxiety is the price tag for planning. I think that's a brilliant framing and the, the way to think about it when you're living in the moment and responding to your feelings in the moment, it's hard to uh, make the kinds of decisions that are going to help you. It's hard to get focused on problem solving when you're overwhelmed in the feeling domain. And that's the importance of what you're saying, Lynn, is that your feelings are part of you. They're not all of you. And there are times when your feelings are not going to be an accurate representation of what's going on. And there are times when you're going to need to ignore your feelings in favor of something that's more important. Any student, uh, so uh, how many of you like final exams? Hands up. Nobody's going to raise their hand. You endure it. You put up with it because you recognize that there's some greater value here. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to go back to talking about something you alluded to earlier, which is really the social component of all of this and bring that up. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook. You can add events directly using the touchscreen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. 
I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option. That is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners, eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Okay, we're back. Okay, so Michael, you were talking about the pandemic and talking about the rates of depression and anxiety that skyrocketed in our young people. I think that one of the important things about that is that people's genes and chemistry didn't change between March 2020 and March 2021, but what changed was our social connection. You've been a huge advocate of really looking at this through a social lens. What I'm getting a lot from teenagers and from parents these days is that, well, this is just who they are. They have this disability. Can you talk a little bit about what you want parents to hear and understand about that your social lens and the importance of that? 
Yeah, here's where critical thinking becomes very important. The pharmaceutical industry is thrilled that you would view the problem as biochemical and requiring medication. But if we actually get to the science, and I wrote a book years ago called Depression is Contagious, and I talked about the social contagion and the kind of environmental conditions. And that was pre-COVID, and COVID just made my point how much environment regulates this. It isn't about biochemistry or genetics. Let's talk science for a second. From the genetic standpoint, it is 100% clear that there is no gene for depression. Everybody, I want you to hear that because I've been saying that and I want you to hear Dr. Yapko say that loud and clear. So thank you. Continue, please. There isn't a gene for depression. There are genes that make you vulnerable to depression. And the difference is we've moved away from genetics in this field into the domain of what's called epigenetics. Epigenetics is the study of how environmental conditions shape genetic expression. And so family environment is an epigenetic force. Psychotherapy is an epigenetic force. COVID was an epigenetic force. Environmental conditions that shape genetic expression. More recently, One of the most comprehensive, perhaps the most comprehensive study ever done addressing the question of, is there a relationship between serotonin and depression was published in July of 2022. And of the millions of articles that have been published in journals over the last however long couple decades, this article reached into the top 400 almost immediately because it was so well done and so controversial, but came to the conclusion very firmly, very clearly, serotonin's got nothing to do with depression or very little to do with it. It isn't about a biochemical imbalance. And in fact, that was just something that the pharmaceutical industry jumped on as a, as a rationale for prescribing these drugs. Well, what's happened since, of course, is we've had how many studies now? Anybody can read this. If you want to go to Google and just type in antidepressants and serotonin and and read about it yourself, you can go straight to the source. But it it makes the point over and over again that it isn't about a biochemical anomaly. It isn't about a shortage of serotonin, that this in fact works against people because when they adopt that biological viewpoint, it makes them less responsive to other interventions like psychotherapy. You know, it becomes a basic well, why should I go to therapy? How's anybody talking to me going to make a difference when my problem is biochemical? So the justification to take medications and what the research has shown us, again, is a very comprehensive study that was just done by the FDA. The FDA was actually annoyed with a particular researcher for saying that the antidepressants really aren't much more effective than placebos. And so the FDA got annoyed with that, given their role in approving these drugs on a very shaky basis. And so they did their own research, redid all of it, recalculated everything. And unfortunately, for their point of view, they came to the same exact conclusion. Statistically, the antidepressants aren't much better than placebos. And there are things that psychotherapy can do, that education can do, that no amount of medication can do. No amount of medication is going to teach you to be a better problem solver. No amount of medication is going to build you a social support system. No amount of medication is going to help you develop realistic goals and work towards them. No amount of medication is going to help you develop better coping skills. 
I mean, I can go on and on and on. And it's not even that I'm anti antidepressants. It's that they're just so limited in what they can do. That it shouldn't be anybody's surprise that when someone is prescribed antidepressants as the sole form of intervention, that has the highest rate of relapse of any form of treatment. And that's because it is by definition under treatment. We know without a doubt how much of depression is socially defined and socially influenced, and no amount of medication is going to touch that. And so we come right back to the same point of what are the skills we're going to need to encourage? What are the skills we're going to need to provide structured environments for teaching? And those are the things that we really should be paying attention to instead of trying to find the miracle drug that we're never going to find. You know, when I say that depression is a social problem, we're not going to find a drug for that any more than other social problems. There's never going to be a drug that's going to cure racism. There's never going to be a drug that cures poverty. These are social issues, and we need to address them on that level. Well, let's go back to your referencing passivity as one of the greatest problems, because this is a perfect storm. If you are a person who passively does not acknowledge your own autonomy in these decisions, if you passively take a prescription because you've been given a diagnosis, you just maintain a passive approach to your depression. So the disruption of taking passivity out and making someone feel like they're empowered is only going to happen through psychotherapy. That's a great point, Robin. And it generates the unintended consequence that it isn't that drugs make you passive. It's that drugs define you as passive in your own evolution. That if you're told you don't have to learn anything new, you don't have to change anything, you don't have to expend any effort to be different in any way, all you have to do is take the drug on time. We're actually reinforcing the very passivity that makes things worse, which is why, again, no surprise, we see such a high rate of relapse and just increasing the medication dosage isn't the answer or switching the person to another drug isn't the answer. Or taking that passive role though, if you're the parent and we're talking about your child, I don't have to do anything but give my kid the prescription given to them. Parents will deceive themselves into thinking that somehow they're playing a role in their kid getting better. But all they're doing is unintentionally reinforcing the worst aspect of it, that we want to make sure that people are active in their own behalf. We want well-defined targets, and we can talk about what some of those targets are. Any therapy is only as good as how well-defined the target is. What Lynn was saying earlier was exactly right, that if the target is to change your past, you're missing the target. You know, the past is gone. Now what? How do you come to terms with it? And I think that one of my favorite quotes, it comes from the late psychiatrist Milton Erickson, who said very plainly, people don't come to therapy to change the past. They come to change the future. And I believe that wholeheartedly, that what we're striving to do is help people acquire the skills now that'll make tomorrow better. But it's, it's a little too late to change your childhood. What do you think for the clinicians that are listening, Michael? Because we have a lot of parents. I know there are a lot of therapists that listen to. It seems that currently, at least when I'm working with families and teenagers, what are we doing wrong 
that the pervasive belief is still in this country that depression and anxiety too, because I hear it with anxiety too, that these are medical problems that need to be treated by, I mean, I just got this well-intentioned, but talk about the knowledge illusion, 10th grader just went up one side of me and down the other after I gave a talk at her school about how I do not know about anxiety and depression because her doctor told her and she went on from there. So what do we as clinicians, how can we be more effective or what are we doing wrong that so many people believe this and don't go for therapy? Well, there are a lot of different avenues to go down there because there's a lot that we're doing wrong on many different levels. The United States is one of only two countries on the planet that allows the kind of drug advertising that we have. When I have visitors that come from Europe or Australia to stay with me, and we watch TV, and in the span of a one-hour show, there have been half a dozen or more drug commercials, and they're, they're really shocked by that. They've never seen that kind of thing before. The fact that we tolerate that kind of commercialism and the fact that we keep having these ads that tell us that this drug will correct the presumed biochemical imbalance, and here's this person in black and white in a darkened room looking deeply sad, and then they take their pill, and then it's sunlight and color, and everybody's happy and dancing. You know, therapists don't have an advertising budget of billions of dollars to compete with that. And so the message is very one-sided. And not being able to teach people how to think their way through that, including physicians. You know, physicians are schooled in the medical model, and they tend to view things, of course, then in biological terms. And the fact that that isn't the appropriate lens to look at some problems doesn't really occur to them very well. Uh, you know, instead of telling people, you know, watch your diet, it's like, can we prescribe the latest diet pill? It's just an unfortunate kind of thing. So to challenge a child to, okay, here's what your doctor said. Now, how about you do your own independent research for a second? Do doctors make mistakes? Yes. Could your doctor be making a mistake about this? Well, I don't think so. Well, let's find out. How do we take these things that are the basis for the knowledge illusion and turn them into research assignments and to literally use the therapy time? I would have grabbed that kid after the lecture and pulled him into one of the rooms where there's a computer and sat him down in front of the computer and say, okay, now I want you to research and let him find out for himself, you know, not from you, but from 10,000 journals that all say the same thing, the, the research that comes to the same conclusion. People think they know. That is the knowledge illusion. So that, that's really important. For therapists to have succumbed to the medical model is an unfortunate thing of defining yourself as somehow less than. And when I'm doing workshops for mental health professionals, I'm always trying to pump them up that you don't have to apologize to anybody for wanting to talk to somebody. You don't have to apologize to anybody for wanting to talk about problem-solving skills and coping skills and all the things that we know make a difference in life. But therapists have, been, by and large, been so intimidated by the medical model that they've actually become part of the problem. You're absolutely right, Lynn, when you talk about the focus on the past. It's the wrong focal point. And when you have therapists who, to me, are the cartoon therapists that say, let's talk about your feelings, let's explore your feelings, let's ventilate your feelings. You know, for somebody who doesn't know how to identify their feelings, much less talk about them, that's a good thing to do. 
It's called emotional self-regulation. And obviously you can't learn to regulate what you can't identify. The problem is what's the difference between identifying and obsessing, identifying and ruminating, identifying and wallowing in it. And, you know, there's a difference between emotional awareness and wallowing in the feelings. And wallowing isn't going to get anybody anywhere. It's important that therapists recognize the educational opportunities, the importance of bringing parents in. You know, the idea of just working with the kid as if, you know, the other 167 hours during the week when they're with their family doesn't much matter. Yeah, you know that drives me crazy. Oh, my gosh, that drives me crazy. This is interesting to me. You know, I can have a room full of therapists and ask them, you know, how many of you see kids and not that many? And for those of you who do see kids, how many of you bring in the parents? I'm like, well, I don't do that. I don't do family therapy. It's like, wow. When we know that where there's a depressed parent, you're very likely to see depressed kids. And now you know it's not because of genetics. It's because of modeling. Again, you can't teach kids what you don't know. So I think therapists need to expand a little bit that you don't necessarily have to turn it into a family therapy, but to not bring in everybody and give everybody a voice about what's going on is just, to me, unthinkable. And to not give everybody a homework assignment. I talk to parents all the time. They come up to me after presentations or whatever, and I say, well, what are the goals of the therapy? They've got a seven-year-old with OCD, or they've got an eight-year-old with social anxiety. I say, what are the goals of therapy? And they're like, goals? Well, uh, uh. Or I say, so what are the homework assignments that the therapist is giving you between therapy sessions? And they say, oh, we haven't gotten that far yet. Well, what are you waiting for, right? I really uh, you know, appreciate what you're saying about how when you get in front of an audience, especially of kids and say, no, actually, there's some things you need to learn to do, that that's going to generate a lot of you know, blowback. Oh, yeah. Nothing pisses them off more. When I say there are things that you can do that will make your anxiety or your depression, right? You got to learn about you. What are the things that help? And this is all the language that you have taught me over the years is that help them think about what to do, right? Ask those how questions. And boy, do they get mad at me, especially now. They've been getting mad at me a lot more in the last few years than they ever have, which is interesting. Well, I never realized the connection of how much the how questions you always emphasize are, again, the skill building of moving away from passivity. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where-are-my-keys kind of mom. 
Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. So now back to the show. We left off talking about the how question and that the how question, how did you decide this? How did you determine this? How do you know this? And this is what opens up the quality of the person's thinking. And it's what highlights what they do know and what they don't know and what they do know that isn't so. And you know, the misinformation aspect of this is what we keep running into. And this is a microcosm you know, I mean, we have to understand this doesn't happen in a social vacuum. If parents really want to understand, just take a look at the way society is structured right now. Look at the political divisions. Look at the level of anger that people have. It's no longer about just winning an argument. It's about destroying the other person. It's no longer about having an informed discussion. It's about who can be loudest and most intimidating. Parents really have to think about what they model when they come home and they're talking about what happened at work today, or when they're watching the news and what they say about the world conditions and what they say about what's going on politically. Basic truth that kids haven't always listened to their parents, but they've never failed to imitate them. You know, a great quote from the social activist James Baldwin. And I believe that that's true. When we look at the science side of the equation, we look at a particular dimension, what's called attributional style, which is a fancy term for the way people explain things. But when we look at the relationship between a parent's attributional style and a child's attributional style, the correlation is almost nearly perfect. And how else could it be that you know, every time your two-year-old asks, why, mommy, why, daddy? Your answer, whether you realize it or not, contains within it an explanation and a value system. So it's no surprise then when you go through your adolescent years saying, I don't want to be like my mom. I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my mom. I don't want to be like my dad. And then you get to 28 and you go, damn. (laughs) (laughs) How did that happen? How did that happen? Can you give a concrete example of a why question that a kid might ask and what would be an answer that would contribute to passivity or a risk factor for depression? And what would be an answer that wouldn't so that parents can hear the difference? Kid can ask, why do I have to go to therapy? Why are you telling me I should go to therapy? I don't want to go to therapy. And you know, the ideal answer, of course, is, look, you're the one who's suffering here. You're the one who's experiencing these bad feelings. You're the one experiencing these difficult times. You're the one that's having the problems with your friends. If you keep doing what you're doing, what do you expect to be different? And that's the best reason for new input. 
Now, whether it's from a conversation that you and I have, parent to child, whether it's a conversation that you have with a therapist, but the point is the limitation to your knowledge is already obvious and you're feeling it. And my assumption is you don't want to feel that way. And I can ask you, if you were going to do something different then, if you were going to change it, what would you do? And literally push the child to say, I don't know. That is such a great line. The limitation of your knowledge is already obvious. I mean, I feel like there are so many moms who got to put that on a t-shirt and walk around the house with that on. Yeah. I have been thinking this whole episode, that's a bumper sticker. We're going to create a Michael Yapko bumper sticker (laughs) series. (laughs) Oh, there have been, I'm sure Michael has gotten probably thousands of mugs and t-shirts and bumper stickers that people have created because you are just scratching the surface of his pithy bumper sticker capacity because it is really unbelievably deep. Yeah. I don't know about that, but my attitude is a sense of humor is pretty important. Somebody wise once said, if you have ever have to choose between losing your leg and losing your sense of humor, lose the leg. <laughs> I think that's a really uh, important thing. You know, life is so serious. And one of the things that helps create some emotional distance so that you can be a little bit more objective about what's going on is good sense of humor. I think that's why the uh, our late night comedians are so valuable to us is that they poke fun at things that... You know, it's serious stuff, but as soon as they put a funny spin on it, it's it helps create a little bit of distance there. And I think that makes a difference. Lynn and I love getting feedback from listeners when the podcast has really motivated change. I would like to ask you this question because we all know in the mental health field, so many of the parents who are listening, who have teens who are depressed are likely on a medication and likely in therapy without them. And they are starting to question their approach. What would you say to them? I think the first thing that they should do is if their child is in therapy and and on medication is to have a conversation with who's prescribing the medication and who's providing the therapy. What is the goal here and how can I support that goal? And does that mean that I should be here physically for some of these sessions or even all of these sessions? Does it mean that I should be following through on homework assignments? Does it mean what? What is my role here? The idea of a parent just turning their child over to someone else, basically saying, uh, here, fix them, is just not an acceptable role to play. And the problem, of course, in today's world is that parents have their hands full already. It is hard dealing with the economic issues, with the job issues, with health issues, with aging parents issues, and all the things that we're dealing with all of the time. And yet at the same time, I mean, here's one of the big myths that people go by. And the myth is that kids are resilient. I hear that all the time. No, they're not. And when we look at the longitudinal studies, the long-term studies, the kids who were bullied at ages 11, 12, 13 years old, when you look in on them 10 years later, these kids have a much higher rate of depression. That that bullying didn't go away. The feelings that they had being bullied didn't go away. Their perspectives about themselves go away. And so, you know, being a parent and taking a passive role and dismissing it with, uh, he'll grow out of it. You know, she'll, she'll, she'll grow out of it is, is simply an untenable position to take. And this is part of the responsibility of being a good parent. And it means being able to 
set aside whatever else and prioritizing your child's well-being, the kinds of experiences that you provide. And let's talk about the positive side of it. And, you know, beyond therapy and medication, you know, what, what are the kinds of experiences that help? I mean, as, as mundane as it sounds, we have how much evidence that families that share meals together do better. What I strive for in doing family work is I don't want this child to feel responsible for their parents, but I do want them to feel responsible to their parents, that they have a responsibility as a member of the family. And that gets socialized early on. If you've never asked your 15-year-old to clean their room, and then all of a sudden you say, clean your room, the odds of that happening are near zero. This is something that happens when you start out the earliest stages of life, that you start teaching the quality of thinking that I'm talking about, the qualities of problem solving that I'm talking about. That when you take your child out into nature and then you ask questions like, so what would you do if? What would you do if a big rock rolled down the hill and blocked our path? What would you do? You're not just scaring the heck out of kids. You're teaching problem-solving skills. And when I was talking earlier about foresight, that is teachable. But it means teaching cause and effect thinking, linear thinking, that if I do this, here's what's going to happen. So that starts early on. You're putting your child's shoes and socks on and you ask your three-year-old, why do you think we put your socks on before we put your shoes on? Why do you think we put the toothpaste on your toothbrush before you put your toothbrush in your mouth? And you literally start teaching this precedes this as a way of starting to teach linearity that it goes from A to B to C. A lot of things can't be predicted, but a lot of things can be. That's where I would want parents to be, to circle back to Robin's question. So that's what we're talking about. And if this person doesn't have that as a part of the treatment plan, why not? Then this may not be the right therapist for this person. If they're content to just let this child come in and complain for an hour, which way too many therapists are willing to do in the guise of being empathetic. But this is one of those differences between therapists. You know, the best way I can capture it is, you know, most therapists believe their job is to comfort the afflicted. And my attitude is that's true some of the time, but a lot of the time it's the reverse where we have to afflict the comfortable. Yeah, yeah. See, another bumper sticker right there, Michael. I quote you a lot. There's a thing you said to me, and I think once I asked you about this and you said you didn't remember saying it, but maybe you do. You said there's nothing more dangerous than somebody who's real sure and real wrong. And that's that whole idea of the knowledge illusion. The other thing too, as you're talking about this, is that you are highlighting the importance of conversation and contact. And it breaks my heart when I'm in the grocery store and the two-year-old is on the iPad. When I was with my kids when they were little, it was, look at that's yellow. Oh, why do you think they put that cereal up there? This idea of asking questions and getting their brains thinking about this cause and effect, I think that that's something that parents really need to value, really need to value. Brilliant. thousand percent correct. You're absolutely right. It's well said. 
I think it's such an important thing that parents spend time with their kids, take them out into nature, get them away from the screens, teach them something about critical thinking, that if you're going to look at this person on TikTok, or you're going to look at this person on Instagram or whatever the social media stuff is that kids are into, you ask the question, okay, here's the image that this person put on social media. Now tell me 10 things about this kid you don't know. That's a good one. See, he comes up with such good homework assignments, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, that, that's just it. You know, it's because it's the same thing in adults when they're dating, you know, for all the single parents out there. You know, that can think this person's really nice after one date and, you know, they start to fall in lust or whatever they think they're falling into. I'm the one that has to remind them, you've been out with this guy twice. T- name 10 things about this person you don't know that are going to end up blowing up in your face. Your job is to learn how to suspend and gather information. Suspend thinking that you already know it all. Suspend thinking that your feelings are an accurate gauge of what's going on especially in this age of narcissism, you know, where literally it, it is on the statistical increase. You know, there's, there's a wonderful author that I think parents should read. Her name is Jean Twenge. It's spelled T-W-E-N-G-E. And she happens to be in my neck of the woods. She's a researcher at San Diego State University. I'm in San Diego. And she's written a number of books. One is called Generation Me. Another one's called The Narcissism Epidemic. Her newest book that just came out a few months ago is called Generations. And if parents are really interested in what the issues are that kids are facing today, they should be reading this stuff. And they should know that we're running into what the detriments are of people being so sure and being so wrong, thinking they can trust the information on the internet, thinking that they can take an image of some happy kid and not know that the same kid, you know, 15 minutes after this picture was taken, started self-mutilating. You just don't know. This is an episode that I think that people should listen to multiple times because the information, Michael, that you're giving, you have such a good way of challenging the things that people accept as truth, that the things that people have heard over and over again, you just have such a good way of really inserting that, like you say, that discomfort, that doubt, that critical thinking that people need to hear. Yeah, well, thanks for that. And again, to help people put it in perspective, I've been at this literally for half a century. If the medications were safe and effective, I'd say, take them. You'd be all in. I'd be all in. And if these approaches to therapy actually worked, I'd be 100% supportive of them. But, you know, being a researcher and being an author, and God forbid somebody should ask me something that I don't know the answer to. You know, I I am a data hound. I am a research fanatic. I love to understand at a broader level what the statistics tell us. And so, you know, the things that I'm sharing, the perspectives that I'm offering are if somebody were to just take the time, they would discover the validity of everything I'm talking about. And I'm not putting anything out that isn't verifiable in a hundred different ways, but it, it requires people to be willing to say, I don't know, and to be willing to turn themselves into researchers. What would be, of the books you've written, because you've written so many wonderful books, if a parent really wanted to get more information and really think about depression in their family, 
Would it be Depression is Contagious? Is that the book that you would recommend? Or would it be Hand Me Down Blues? Or what do you think? Yeah, it's hard to pick just one because each of them comes at it from a different angle. Hand Me Down Blues is a little bit older, but it's still relevant. You know, it's still about dealing with family issues and the kinds of things that happen in families. You know, hands down, my most popular book is a book called Breaking the Patterns of Depression. That's also on audio uh, as well. But that book just keeps going and going and going because it is so practical. There are a lot of strategies, but it approaches depression from the individual perspective. Depression is contagious, I wrote then, because I wanted to approach it from the interpersonal perspective. What, what happens in relationships that increase or decrease people's vulnerability to depression? So, uh, And then more recently, I did a much more streamlined book called Keys to Unlocking Depression. Here's a point and then a couple paragraphs to explain it and then on to the next point. So it's the kind of thing that you can read a page at a time and learn, still learn something. It's kind of a succinct summation of, of what we know. Yeah, it just depends how much reading people want to do, but any of those would be, uh, I think, useful. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today. I'll never look at passivity the same way again. You've blown my mind. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's a great conversation. Oh, you know what you mean to me, so thank you. And you know what you mean to me, so that's <laughs> it, is, it is mutual admiration from the very beginning. It is. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you found this podcast helpful, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find this information. And if you'd like to dig deeper on any of these topics, we have specialized playlists on our Spotify profile, and the link is in the show notes. Topics like teens, depression, and OCD. Bye, Lynn. Bye, Robin. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.